Before we start, I want to give a big shout-out to our newest Patreon members. Sam M., Rama G., Colleen D., Maria F., Melanie D., Joan U., and Velissa B. Thanks so much to all of you, and thank you so much to all of our other Patreon members. If you'd like to experience being a Patreon member and all the benefits that come with it, go to oneufeed.net slash join. Nobody's going to do Zazen, especially me for 37 freaking years, without wanting something from it. But the fact that you want something from it doesn't have to be all that relevant. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Brad Warner, an ordained Zen teacher and also the author of many books, most of which have hilarious titles like There Is No God and He's Always With You, Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, and his 2004 book Hardcore Zen. He also maintains his blog and YouTube channel, Hardcore Zen. And as if that's not enough, Brad is also a punk rock bass player in the band Zero Defects and has published work in the Buddhist magazines Shambhala Sun, Buddha Dharma, and Tricycle, as well as rock magazines such as Alternative Press, Maximum Rock and Roll, and Razor Cake. Hi, Brad. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to have you back. You and I talked, it's been probably four years ago. Mm. The main difference between, well, there's lots of differences between now and then, but one of them is that in the intervening years, um, I've become a much more serious practitioner of Zen. So we've got a little oh. bit more in common there. You know, I'd always okay. sort of considered myself a an all-purpose Buddhist, maybe, mm-hmm. but I've gotten very specific and very focused in the last couple of years on Zen. So we'll have more to talk about that. There, but let's start like we always do with the parable. There is okay. a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, and bravery, and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, I think it's an important thing, and I think it's a good parable, and it's true. It is the one that you you feed that wins, and you always have a choice of whether to feed your greed and anger and hatred or or feed the other parts, you know, the better, the kindness and love and, and all of that. And I think that's 
real crucial. The book that we're going to be talking about is not the one that I'm writing now. I've decided that I wanted to write a book about Buddhist ethics, and that plays into it too. There's a really strong ethical component to Buddhism. And I've been looking at some other sort of non-dual philosophies like Advaita Vedanta and that. And there are ethical components there, but they aren't as strong as in Buddhism. Buddhism really lays the ethics on heavy, you know, sometimes. I think even when I first came across it, I, was, I thought that was a bit heavy. But now I realize, oh no, this is a really good thing uh, to, to follow an ethical uh, system uh, to live your life because it's good. It's good for me and it's good for everybody else that I encounter. So I think uh, feeding that uh, good wolf is, is the best thing for everybody involved. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think we could explore that for a while because when I started initially being really into Buddhism, I was really drawn towards language that talked about a behavior was skillful or it was unskillful. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this sort of framing that that I felt moved things away from a, an ethical or moral area, and that appealed yeah. to me for for quite some time. And even at times, as I looked at this parable, there's moments where I'm like. Well, you know, maybe we've got a skillful and an unskillful wolf and, and, you know, well, that's kind of a boring parable to have a skillful or unskillful <laughs> yeah, yeah, wolf. Yeah, yeah. But more and more, maybe this is what happens, I don't know, as part of natural part of getting older or what, but as I've gotten... As I've gotten older, I've gotten more interested in the ethical or moral ideas and a belief that there is some right and wrong that exists, or at least that, that I can orient around. Yeah, yeah. Zen, Zen is really weird about that because they'll, on one hand, tell you there is no right or wrong. And on the other hand, Dogen is great for this. He'll tell you there is no right or wrong, and then he'll tell you, do the right thing. You know, the, the Shoaku Makasa is one of my favorite passages in all of Dogen's, and it just that's just Japanese for uh, don't enact wrong. Don't. And I made that uh, a title of my book before, a few books ago, called Don't Be a Jerk. And I just tried to sort of Americanize that into Don't Be a Jerk. But there are different ways of looking at the world, and there are ways of looking at the world in which you can't say that there's any right or wrong. And then, you know, words like skillful or unskillful kind of help get you into that. But you can also say that in a given situation, when you're you're face to face with somebody and something has to be done, there is the right thing to do, and there's probably a thousand not right things to do. And trying to find the right thing to do is uh, tricky sometimes because we tend to get very dominated by our own desires and fears and things, and you'll you'll respond based on desire and fear rather than on what's actually the, the proper thing to do in the moment, which is why we have the Buddhist precepts. The Buddhist precepts are just kind of rules that you can defer to if in trouble and you don't know what to do. You, know, you just try to follow the, the sort of the, the ethical behavior of the ancient Buddhists, you know, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, there's a bunch of them. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that sort of two ways of seeing the world. There's a view in Buddhism, or Zen in particular, but I think it applies across the board, of seeing that the world is whole and perfect yeah. and kind of as it is, all is well. And there's another way of seeing the world that is more the way we tend to see the world. You could refer to it as, as more dualistic, yeah. or I sometimes hear it referred to as there's the absolute and the relative, you know, and maybe the answer is just when it gets down to practical things, there is a right or wrong, but how do you balance or keep those two views in mind in a way that's useful? It's tricky because if you go, if you go just by language or an intellectual understanding you get one sort of answer and you get another answer if you're if you're actually just in the moment doing things and i think the point is to go for the answer that that works in the moment doing things everybody likes to talk about that you know absolute truth and relative truth and i've never it's just maybe me but i've never been comfortable about dividing things that way i i feel like the absolute truth and the relative truth are ultimately the same so it's not that there's one sort of behavior that works in the absolute realm and one sort of behavior that works in the in the relative realm what you want to do for the sake of the absolute is the same sort of behavior that you want to do 
in the relative context. You want to do right by whatever you encounter, whoever, I was going to say people, but it doesn't necessarily always have to be people, but by whoever you encounter and in whatever situation you find yourself in, you want to do the proper thing. And that is how the absolute kind of makes its way into the world, I think. The, the absolute is, is always on the side of doing the proper thing. The problem is the proper thing is, is often difficult. You know, you can't make a blanket set of rules that are going to apply to every situation. This is one of the things that's acknowledged in the Buddhist precept. My teacher had this, God, I wish I could come up with it off the top of my head, but he had this great way of phrasing it, where he does this Q&A in this book that he wrote about uh, the precepts. And he's kind of going on and on about, you know, it's sort of absolute, you know, there is no absolute right or wrong. And blah, blah, blah. And he goes on for that with a paragraph. And then the student says, well, then does that mean we should follow the precepts? And he said, we should definitely follow the precepts, <laughs> you know? So even though there is no absolute right and wrong, and then things are as they should be always and forever, you follow the precepts. And that's how you get through this, you know, as Prince said, this thing we call life, you know, <laughs> you're trying to do the right thing by everyone you encounter. Yeah, I was reading something today earlier that was talking about that idea of saying, uh, of saying everything's perfect. It was a Zen book. And it said, not that everything is perfect in like the way we normally think of that. Mm -hmm. It just meant that everything was perfect as in it was complete and it was as it is. Yeah, yeah. When we hear perfect, we sort of read into ideal. Yeah, you sort of ideal or paradise. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. what's meant there. Yeah, yeah. It's just complete. That's sort of the thing that I'm struggling with to try to explain in this book that I'm writing now, which I probably shouldn't overpromote because it'll be a while before it comes out. It's that idea. I was sort of putting some of this stuff on my YouTube page and somebody objected to the idea of, um, what was the idea I put it for? You should always try to avoid harm or, or avoid doing harm to any living creature or sentient being, as they say in, in Buddhism. And somebody kind of came back with, well, if a, this means that a parent whose uh, child is being attacked by a wolf can't, uh, can't uh, fight back against the wolf because that would be harming them. <laughs> you know, and people get into these weird... When, when they hear this, they, they go into this like absolute area where you can't do anything. And the thing is, if you look at Buddhist ethics, the way they, they sort of described on paper, you would imagine that a Buddhist couldn't do anything, <laughs> you know, like, like they, they would be just stuck not doing anything at all for fear that they would do harm to, to something. I mean, the Buddhists get even really weird. There's a, a line that one of my teacher's teachers said in a lecture that I was looking at, and he said, he's holding this stick that the Zen teachers often hold when they give a lecture. And he said, when I touch my stick to the ground, both the stick and the ground feel pain, but they don't say so. That was what he said. And from the Zen point of view, you can go, okay, I get what he's saying. If you tried to take that out into sort of... Um, mindset that we have where everything is a separate individual object with its own agency and its own feelings and, and so forth, then you get this idea that, oh my God, a Buddhist can't even touch a stick on the ground because he's afraid he's going to cause harm to the stick in the ground. But that's not, <laughs> that's not the way it is. It's actually a much more practical philosophy. But it acknowledges this other side in which we say that the whole universe is a living entity and everything that we do does kind of hurt it, <laughs> you know, but we're at the same time, we're trying to minimize that amount of harm that we do because we know that that's good for everybody. And we know that that's how we eventually make this world a better place. Totally, totally. All right, let's change gears a little bit. Your book that I've took most of my notes from is called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. Uh, there are a series of letters you wrote. Most of them happened while you were on tour in Europe, and they were written to a friend of yours who died at the age of 48 from cancer. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. That's a good summation. It was this uh, interesting book to write because I'd had this idea for a while that I had been writing some books that I still think are, are really good, but I was writing these books that were sort of deep dives into the philosophy of Dogen and trying to explain its relevance to the contemporary world and, and kind of make it accessible to people. And I was going and doing these tours in Europe and elsewhere and getting questions back from the audiences that indicated that 
a lot of the people I was talking to, not only, I mean, they, they were interested in what I had to say, but not only didn't they know who Dogen was, they, they barely knew who Buddha was or what Zen <laughs> was, you know? And I thought, oh, I better take a few steps back and, and put a book out that explains a very basic outline of what this philosophy is. In the meantime, a, a friend of mine had cancer and died. Um, and it was really devastating because this is a guy I knew since uh, we were both in high school and uh, we'd actually lived uh, in the same house together for a while. So I knew him pretty well. By the time he got the cancer diagnosis, I hadn't seen him regularly for a few years, but we've been you know, communicating online like people do. And so we were pretty close and I visited him a couple of times during his um, last uh, illnesses and kind of saw what was going on. And after he died, you know, I, I had this idea of, I wish I had talked to him about this Zen stuff. I mean, he knew he was around the entire time from the, the start of my entry into the practice, you know, would have been a couple of years after we met each other in high school. And then when we were living together in that punk rock house, I was sitting Zazen, you know, every morning and every night in my, in my little room, which was, you know, down the hall from his room. Uh, I didn't talk much about Zen to him. I'm not one of these people who kind of fancies himself as into Zen, you know, and, and wants to kind of tell the world and wear the Birkenstocks and whatever you do to kind of try to indicate that you're into some sort of Eastern spirituality. So, we never really had a conversation about it, but he, he was a guy who was interested in those kind of things. And when I visited him, when he knew, you know, his prognosis, he got it very late in the disease. So he never had a good prognosis. We were always hoping that, that something would, you know, something would happen and pull through, but it didn't happen. And so everybody was aware, uh, that, that, uh, that this is what was going to happen to him and he wasn't going to last very long. But I decided when I was with him, and the two times I went up to visit him during his illness, that I didn't want to be one of those people who tries to sell a dying person on their religion, because I think that's obnoxious. You know, that's, I don't, I, I don't like that, you know, when people do that. So I thought, well, I'm just going to let him uh, move the conversation wherever it wants to go. And in retrospect, I had some regrets of thinking that, well, maybe I could have pushed things a little bit, you know, maybe he was a little bit too shy to go into some of these areas. And maybe I should have, you know, kind of uh, moved the conversation in that way, because we never did get into the depths that we could have gotten into, because we, were, we spent like a week together two different times. So this book was sort of a way to kind of rectify it. It's sort of a, a way to say all the things that I felt like I should have said to him, uh, explaining this practice, explaining what it has to do with everything. And I had this funny question when I gave a lecture about this in, in London, right after the book had come out, where somebody said, of course, you're not a person who believes that uh, your dead friend can actually read these letters. And I said, well, <laughs> not exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't put it absolutely outside of the realm of possibilities that he might uh, be able to, to read the letters in some sort of way, although not as, you know, a, a guy sitting up in heaven with a harp and, uh, and looking at the book. But there might be a way that, that what he was uh, receives what I'm trying to give him. So in that sense, I took it really seriously. Like I'm actually trying to say this to my dead friend. But I'm also right. I also know I'm writing a book, you know, and I know that most of the people who are reading it are not him. <laughs> and, and so I tried to make sure I wasn't saying anything in the book that I wouldn't actually say to him. You know, I, I tried to put my mind in the mindset that, okay, he can read this, you know, whether I absolutely believe that or not is, is kind of not relevant to me, really. But I thought for the sake of the book, I have to write it as if he can uh, read it. And so it makes it very sort of intimate. So I'm telling him, uh, this, this friend of mine, what what I would have said to him. And then the audience gets to look in on it if they're interested <laughs> and see what I have to say to, to my friend who died uh, about Zen. That's a long explanation of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to dive in and talk about a couple things in the book there that you said. And and the first, I'm just going to read just a short little section here, because I really love what you say here. You say, we're like icebergs. What we know is only the little bit that shows above the water. The rest of us goes on forever 
below, unseen, unknowable. We can't understand it. We can only try to accord with it. And I'd like you to just elaborate a little bit more on what does accord with these deep, unseen, unknowable parts of ourselves? What does that mean? It's interesting you should bring that up because, you know, certain parts of that book are really real. And that part, actually, I copied from a, a diary that I was writing right after this friend, right after I got the news that he died. You know, the day described in the early part of the book, what I, was, I went to this pizza shop in Hamburg in Germany, and uh, and was sitting there writing in this diary. And that was one of the things I wrote was about the icebergs. And then I just basically copied it into the book and didn't change it very much. But I, I think that's my feeling about life. Our conscious mind is able to access a certain certain aspects about our self. And, and, you know, if you're if you practice Buddhism, like I know you do, the word self is a loaded word in Buddhism, right, but right. there is a there is a sense of personal self. And the personal self is something Thing we, I was going to say we know very well, but we don't actually know it very well, but it's among the things that we know, it's the thing that we know best. You know, it's, it's sort of a limited trajectory of a life history and, and likes and dislikes and things like that that all come together and we form a picture of ourselves, which is about as accurate as the pictures that we form of anybody else. You know, there's one thing that struck me during practice one day, like a, you know, a wallop on the head was that I, I know myself about as well as I know, you know, a close friend, uh, which is, you know, I don't know that much about, you know, even my closest friends, you know, and, but we do know that and, and we know that aspect, but then there's this other business that just goes on. Like I use the metaphor of the iceberg. That's, that's huge underneath and that that probably is much more meaningful than any of that personal stuff that personal stuff is just sort of weird little reflections of what's going on underneath and to accord with that is difficult because the you know the personal self has its own agenda you know has things it wants to do and you know places it wants to go and you know stuff it wants to accomplish and all that but it might not be in accord with that bigger sort of uh, push that's going on. And that push that's going on is what brought your personal self into existence in the first place. This is me being all weird and zenny, I suppose. You know, the reason you're here, the reason you manifest on this earth as this thing that you are, is for a bunch of reasons that are not accessible to the, the conscious mind. But you can sort of accord with them. You, you can sort of try to feel where this is going and and try to do what's best to make that happen. And it's something I've been working on all my life and I, I feel like I've gone wrong in, in a lot of ways, but one of the Buddhist precepts is don't speak or, or don't dwell on past mistakes. It's a good so one. I try not to dwell on my past mistakes. It's a good one. <laughs> but uh, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. And as I make those mistakes, I learn from those mistakes. And I try to move things back on track. And, and that's, you know, what I've always been trying to do, at least consciously, even if I screw up a lot of the times. And that's how I accord with it. But it's always a little bit, it's going on at a level that the conscious mind doesn't have access to. So it's not like you can go, okay, I need to you know, buy a Prius. <laughs> I don't know what people <laughs> decide they want to do, but um, maybe it involves buying a Prius. But I think it's much more nebulous and harder to understand than that. It's more like a push towards an, an end. And somehow I got pushed towards this Buddhist end. And I, and I often wonder why, you know, why me? <laughs> why, why Buddhism, you know, of all things? Even after 37 years, because I figured it out today, is at least 37 years of Buddhist practice. I still don't feel like much of a Buddhist, and I uh, still don't know why this is the thing that I chose to kind of go for. But I, I think it's something that that needed to be done in the world. And whatever forces are out there that understand these things saw that need and popped me into existence and said, here you go, that's your job. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> yeah, something like that.
Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. You mentioned an uh, old teacher of yours. I don't know if I'll get his name right. Nishijima? Nishijima, yeah. Nishijima Roshi. Um, yeah. Your teacher while well, you were in Japan. And people would ask him what Buddha was. And he would say, I think Buddha was a kind of genius. And you go on yeah. to say, I think that's the best way to understand Buddha. That means he was sort of like a spiritual Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking. I think that's a great, great explanation. Say a little yeah. bit more about what that means to us. Yeah, I just, I really liked it when he said that. I, I, if I remember right, the conversation was with a, a guy who was, a, a, I think he was a devout Catholic or he was raised a devout Catholic and he really wanted to understand what Buddha was cosmically. So I think what he wanted was a, an answer like, you know, the savior of mankind or, or something that would be more um, a religious answer, I think is what this, I don't know for sure, but it seemed like in the conversation, that's what he was reaching for. And Nishima Roshi came out with, uh, I think he was a sort of genius, you know, I love that because it sort of puts him back on the level because you, you can kind of say, well, there's a lot of ways you can take that, you know, Stephen Hawking or, or Albert Einstein, we understand that they don't possess magical powers or, or they aren't celestial beings, uh, in that sense, uh, maybe we're all celestial beings, but you know, we, we don't need to go there, but, um, they're people like us, but you also understand that if you wanted to argue about the rules of, of general and special relativity with Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking, you probably, you're probably not going to get, <laughs> you're probably not going to get very far. You know, you have to defer to, to a person like that when it comes to their area of expertise, you know, and same with, with the Buddha or the same with the great uh, masters in, in Buddhism as well, is you understand that they're human beings and you don't try to kind of um, idealize them too much, but you have to understand that, that if the Buddha said something about ethics, for example, it's probably not going to make much sense to argue your point about ethics against Buddha's point about ethics. So, so that's why I get funny reactions from the sort of audience that I have for my books, I think, because it's a sort of a, you know, it's a snarky punk rock audience and they're going, well, why are you always quoting these old ancient masters? Because, you know, aren't you going to say something for yourself or, you know, I'll get this, that kind of response sometimes. And, and I think, well, no, these, these ancient masters are revered for a reason. You know, they're not, they're not just arbitrarily set up there on a, on a pedestal. It's because they said and did things that were recognized by the, their contemporaries as important and worth preserving even after they died. Sorry, that's Ziggy, my dog. He's, uh, he's barking at my girlfriend's mom out in the backyard. But um, that's what I mean when I, I say uh, that he was a genius. I'm, you know, I don't know if Nishijima Roshi meant exactly that, but I think he, he did. He wasn't, he wasn't really, he didn't like all the sort of supernatural stuff that sent, tends to surround Buddhism sometimes, especially being a Japanese person where that stuff you know, kind of can get overwhelming, uh, depending on which sort of Buddhist temple you go to. 
So, so talking about him in terms of being a human genius was, I think, his way of kind of bringing that down to a more realistic sort of view. And so in your mind, given that, when we talk about the three treasures or the three jewels, right, there's different words we could use. I, I pay homage to, I, I venerate, I, you know, we'll say the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, right? And so, you know, when we say Buddha in that sense, what do you think we're saying there? You know, is that not a phrase you even like? And if it's one that you don't like, or if it's one that you do use, what's that translation in your mind mean? Because where I get hung up is I'll go, well, okay, the Buddha, historical figure who was really wise, gave us all these teachings, but isn't that sort of the Dharma? No, well, okay, you know, those two get confused in my mind. They should, I think, probably. You know, the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha even are are kind of a, a single thing, you know, the Sangha being the, the group of practitioners and the Dharma being the teachings and the Buddha being the person. But of course, if you if you get into Mahayana Buddhism, if you want to get into the, the sort of philosophical intellectual history of the thing, uh, they transformed the meaning of, of Buddha from being the, the historical person to a sort of ideal that is believed to be a real thing, you know, not just an idea that uh, pervades the whole universe, a kind of a, a living spirit, if you will, of rightness. We revere that and we honor that in the sense that it manifests in everybody, you know, not just the historical figure. You study Zen, so you know that Zen tends to almost downplay to the annoyance of a lot of other sects of Buddhism, the historical figure of Buddha. The Zen teachers often quote the Buddha, but if you actually look at what their quotes are from, they're from Mahayana sutras, which were written long after the Buddha died. And you don't get a whole lot of quotations from the actual historical Buddha when you listen to a Zen teacher talk about Buddha. So it's not, it's not exactly the sense of revering that guy. Uh, Although, although, he was a special person, you know, you have to right. kind of acknowledge that he set something into motion that was very, very important and, and shouldn't be kind of looked down upon. Uh, the, and the Dharma is, is that thing. But then, of course, you get into Mahayana Buddhism again, and, and the word Dharma becomes a, a kind of a catch-all term. I was just trying to explain it in a piece of writing I was doing yesterday, and I realized, well, the way that the word dharma is being used in this particular sentence means anything and everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, this right. cup that I'm holding, well, you, your audience can't see it, but this cup I'm holding is dharma. You know, I mean, literally that would be included in, in all dharmas in some versions. Even aspects of the physical world are, are dharmas. The one I always had trouble with, if we want to go there, is sangha, because I... I like I said, I never really fancied myself a Buddhist, and I would be with these Buddhist groups, and I know that this is an important part of the practice, but I'd be kind of like, I don't want to honor these jokers. Yep, you know? yep. And a lot of them weren't really friends of mine or anything, even among the groups I practiced with. I'd be kind of like, I don't want to hang around with that guy, you know, except when we're, we're doing something Buddhisty together. But then that should be honored, too, because these are the people you know, like it or not, these are the people who are taking this stuff seriously. And whether you agree with them or whether you kind of mix with them otherwise, this is who's uh, working on this stuff. It's always a little hard for me. You know, there's this trendy phrase, the Maha Sangha, and Maha means great. And they're talking about the the greater group of Buddhists throughout the world. And uh, usually they're referring in America to American Buddhists. And I look at American Buddhism and I go, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, there's some stuff in there that I kind of go, well, yeah, that's fine if you want to do that. But I don't think that's what I'm working on. They get very political and stuff sometimes. And, And usually it's all for a good cause. You know, I haven't seen many Buddhists supporting causes that I think are bad. But I also think, uh, you know, there's there's something deeper we're working on here, and if you if you kind of channel it into a political cause, you're, you get lost in the politics of it. And I'd rather bring it back down to what it is at its core, the reason we're trying to do the right thing, rather than the you know the specific laws you're trying to get enacted or, or movements you're trying to support and stuff. Um, there's always a core to that that's more basic and important than the specifics, and you can get lost. I'm sorry. I shouldn't go there, though. (laughs) (laughs) That opens a whole can of worms that we're not going to have time for. But Good. (laughs) (laughs) 
because I, I actually made a decision, uh, you know, after the pandemic and everything started going wonky with everybody that I'm just really going to stay away from that. Like I, I hadn't been getting it. I've been trying to stay away from it before, but dipping my toes in it here and there. And then I thought, no, I'm going to stay absolutely out of that, you know, and just work on, on something much more, I think, much more basic than that. spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Let's talk about something that I think is pretty basic and yet universal and pretty important. And it's one of the most challenging, I think, aspects of a serious Buddhist practice. Um, And it's not self, although it can't avoid the self, but it's really the discussion around desire and goals. There's a lot of saying, you know, particularly in Zen, that, you know, we don't practice meditation or Zazen. We don't do it for any reason. We don't do it for any goal. There's no goal. What we want to do is abandon our goals, right? And and then, of course, you get yourself into an infinite loop that goes, well, isn't wanting to be free of desires another type of desire? And But I want to talk a little bit about why are we even trying to not have a goal in our spiritual practice? Well, it's a good question because you're, you're right. You can get into this endless loop of the goal of having no goal is also a goal. But the way my first teacher, Tim McCarthy, solved that for me is he said, well, yeah, semantically, the goal of having no goal is, is also a goal. But it, when you're actually working on having no goal, it's very different from working on having a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual practice of it is a whole different way of, of working on things. And probably the main reason for not having a goal is because everything in our society tends to be very goal-oriented. I just started looking at Alan Watts, and I, I usually used to avoid even mentioning him because, you know, he's very pop culture and stuff. But he, he said some great things. And there's this little video you can find on, on YouTube that's done by um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park guys. They animated to a speech that Alan Watts gave in the 60s or something about having goals, you know, and, and it's, it's about in uh, first grade, your goal is to get into second grade and you're, you know, and, you, and then your, your goal is to get into junior high school and then your goal is to get into high school and then your goal is to, to you know, maybe get into a, a university or a college and then your goal is to get a job. And, and then, you know, you, you live your whole life with all, always something out there that's the thing you're going for. And each time you get it, you know, you might have 
a moment of elation, like, yeah, I did that, but but pretty soon that just becomes another part of the ordinary life, and then you have to go for the next goal. So everything is is goal-oriented. And the idea of Zazen meditation is to to do this without any goal. But of course, nobody's gonna do Zazen, especially you know, like me for 37 freaking years, without wanting something from it. But the fact that you want something from it doesn't have to be all that relevant. You know, you sit on your cushion, you know, wanting whatever that thing is you want. And as that want comes up in your mind, if you're working on this seriously, you put it aside and go, okay, that's, here's where I am now, you know, and, and uh, want to be better, but here's where I am now. And just keep facing this as it is and not worrying about the goal. The other problem with goals is, especially when they're spiritual goals, is they tend to just move you in the wrong way. There's this one passage of Dogen's that I was working on a couple of weeks ago, where Dogen says something like, no one ever had realization and thought, oh, this is realization. It's just exactly as I expected it to be, you know. Uh, so any sort of expectations you have about this, you know, realization, which is a normal, the standard goal of a lot of meditators and Zen practitioners, any sort of idea you have about it is, is a false idea anyway. So there's no real sense in setting your sights on that thing that you just made up out of out of the same sort of confused, problematic consciousness that, that you're sort of working to overcome anyway. So you just set aside all goals and just try to see uh, things as they are. The irony of it is, is that things as they are is quite different from what you imagine them to be. And once you start to catch glimpses of that and notice how wrong you've been, in my own case, uh, I can tell you that, that when that first started happening years ago in my practice, it was sort of scary because I, I realized that every idea I had about who I was and the life I was living and what the world was, was completely wrong. You know, and and at first, there's nothing, you don't have anything to put in its place. You know, it's not as if you get a download of the right idea and go, oh, yeah, it's, it's like this, you know. That's what sort of religions are good at. You know, they, they come up with a different sort of framework for you to, to, to follow and say, oh, yeah, this is the will of Kolob, or I don't know, I just <laughs> made that up, or maybe that's Mormonism or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, you, you have that idea, but, but in the Zen form, you're just putting aside any ideas that you have and you kind of, you can kind of feel like you're just adrift. Like there's nothing, there's not, you know, if I can't believe in my own body and mind, (laughs) then what the hell can I believe in? And this is one of the reasons the practice is also all about relaxation. You know, it's fun to poo poo people who, who talk about meditation as a relaxation thing, but it really is. And part of the reason that, that relaxation is part of it is, is you have to be very relaxed when it comes up to your mind that you don't even know who and what you are. <laughs> you know, and you have to be like, okay, <laughs> I don't know who and what I am. Now what am I going to do about that? And, and what it turns out is, you know, spoiler alert, that who and what you are is actually a good thing you know there's nothing scary about it in fact it's like a, a foundation it's like a solid solid foundation uh, that you find at the bottom of of all this when you thought that you were in free fall and then you realize no i'm standing on on the most solid ground possible and it just seems like free fall because everything I, I thought about it before was wrong. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, you said a couple of things in the book that I thought really, really summarized this well. You, you said that practice is for getting you into your true experience. It's for learning how not to be chasing after something other than where you are right now. And then the other thing that you said, and I, I, I love this whole sort of couple sentences is he said what we're trying to do in zazen practice is to get into our real experience unadorned as it is and see it for what it is what happens when you do that is surprising for me when i finally started to understand what my own life really was i discovered that my ordinary mundane life was much subtler and more beautiful and important than i ever could have imagined and 
And I think that's that's such a great way of saying it. The problem with goals by their very nature is they are somewhere else, some other time. They always draw our eyes up and away towards someplace else, something else, instead of right here. And the amazing thing about right here is that if we actually sort of touch it, it's very different than what we think of. We think of right here or right now is generally kind of boring. But when you, when you actually touch it in a deeper way, it's, as you said, it's, it's something much more than that. And you just say, you know, when we try to acquire things that are far away from us, we miss out on what is very near. We miss out on our real lives here and now. And that's the saddest thing that can possibly happen. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's something that I personally always have to remind myself because I'm just like anybody else. I can, get, I can get seduced by, you know, the idea that there's something better, especially, you know, you look at a, a time like we're going through now, everything seems to be wonky and you just want it to be over and resolved and, you know, and things to get back to some sort of semblance of normalcy. And it's hard to see that as being, this is exactly where I needed to be. You know, this is especially uh, difficult in, in these times, even for me, after all the practice I've done. I've gone there enough to know that that's true, you know, and, and I've read enough teachers who themselves have gone through very difficult times, and and they say that's true too. You know, I think about Nishima Roshi, and you know, he was practicing zazen during the Second World War, you know, in Japan. Um, you know, these are heavy times, and and people have gone through them and gone, okay, this is absolute reality as it needs to be. And there's a kind of deep beauty to it that transcends any ideas you might have about how it ought to be or how you want it to be. Like I say, it's a tough sell, especially right now, as I say, to, to say this, because I think we all agree that this is not where we want to be. But in, this, in, in another sense, this is, this is part of a process that is is an endless process that's been going on for a very long time. And we're just trying to kind of accord with it, just to get back to the thing I said several minutes ago, trying to find our own place in it and our own right action within uh, the situation that we are forced into. I have found Zen training to be very useful for me during quarantine because every time my brain goes, I need to be somewhere else, some Zen voice pops up inside me and goes, no, it's right here. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got to I gotta pay attention. Um, the thing that you go on to say, which I think I want to take this, this point just a little bit further, is the thing that has always sort of been a challenge to me as I look at this basic Buddhist idea of, hey, it's you always wanting things to be different than they are that's your problem. If you could stop doing that, you'd feel better, right? Which it makes intuitive sense. At the same time, I see this desire just pouring out of us as human beings, you know, and the thought that I'm trying to eliminate that feels like, well, I'm trying to squash something that's essential. And you really make a nice point that, you know, desire seeking is sort of built into our nature. And if we try and battle it out and eliminate that, we're just going to fail. So how do we work with the fact that desire is not going to go away just because we think it's not a useful tool? Yeah, it's a difficult one. One of the things Nishijima Roshi used to like to tell in his lectures is, in Japan, you get the same sort of basic Buddhism as you get anywhere else now because they kind of follow a Western model. And the idea is that the first noble truth is is all life is suffering, and the second one is suffering is caused by desire, and the third one is that you cut off suffering by cutting off desire. And he said that that, that never worked for him because you can't cut off desire. You're always going to be desiring something. It, you know, at the most basic level, you desire to breathe air, you know, and, and eat, you know, and, and sleep and do things like that. You can't you can't just um, evade all desire. So you you kind of have to put desire into its its place. It comes up and you notice it and you go, well, you know, that desire is a desire for something that makes sense, you know, like like I'm hungry and I want to eat. And you do that and the, the way desire goes wrong is when when it becomes greed, I think. And maybe that's, you know, the real key to it. Maybe the, the problem isn't so much desire as, as a kind of greed for wanting things to be different from how they actually are or wanting things to be 
you always want things to be better, but um, you kind of even put that aside and just allow things to be as they are. And I mean, it's a tricky one because desire can mean a whole lot of things. Not every desire is, is bad. Desire for world peace is not a bad thing. The desire for a less polluted atmosphere is not a bad thing. You know, the desire for an end to the pandemic is not a bad thing. You know, and I'm glad there's a lot of people working on those projects. At the same time, you know, you, you want to eliminate a tendency to desire more than what is actually necessary. But that, you know, you can fine tune that in, in lots of ways. You know, the early Buddhists would uh, have one robe and one begging bowl and trust the universe to provide for them. And uh, ironically, you don't, you don't hear a lot of stories where that fails. You know, they always seem to to get by. It's a very difficult thing. And I don't know too many, I might know a couple of contemporary Buddhists who try that, but neither of my teachers ever went that far with it. But you do try to kind of limit it to uh, what's manageable. And, and for myself, you know, especially in light of recent events, I've really cut down on a lot of things and realized, oh, there's so much, there's so much <laughs> that I don't actually need. I think there's maybe an interesting consciousness developing during during all of these shutdowns that um, if we can accord with it and and find our way into it might actually end up really improving the world. And of course, there's all the negative things, which of course the news is doing a great job of covering, but they're not doing such a great job of covering uh, the positive sort of uh, things that are happening to people as they are forced to you know, limit their movements and limit what they can get, you know? Yep. Yep. Totally. Well, that's the news for you. All right. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. You and I are going to talk for a couple minutes in the post-show conversation about a statement you make, which is that what most people call spirituality is Bullshit. <laughs> you and I are going to talk about that in the post-show conversation. Listeners, if you would like to get access to the post-show conversation and other things and the joy of supporting the show, you can go to oneufeed.net slash join. Thanks so much, Brad, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to uh, talk with you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, Make a donation at any level and become a member of the One You Feed community. Go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.